0: I think we
1: are good to go here, team. Lauren, is that other video rendered so we can hit record?
0: It does say in the top left-hand corner it's recording. It
1: it says in the top left corner of the screen it's recording, which is usually a fair indicator.
2: How are you? Good. How are y'all? What what time is it there?
0: Tea time, five o'clock.
2: 5 p.m. Yeah. All right. All right. I got you working uh, maybe just past five, which is what? what, what, yeah, my,
0: what my, my, my wife should have the tea on the table now, James, but instead I'm spending it with
2: you. <laughs> All right. I feel honored. <laughs> yeah. The Great, great Mike and Jonathan right here. Got it. I, well, not quite great.
0: On <laughs> a journey to it. So let's tell James that. What well, You tell him what the format is because it's so your cool format. What
1: Mike and I normally do with these is we, we've just written down some questions and then we'll let you go and then we'll talk. Okay,
2: You know, yeah. the, the,
0: the, okay, let's be clear, the outcome is good media for you and good media for us. So that Hell people yeah. buy your book and people subscribe to our channel. So, you know, we've found in the past that a little bit of friction. And I, what's interesting about this, actually, maybe we'll cover this in the show, is that actually you've split Jonathan and me in this book. Yeah, we're a bit divided. We're James. normally in agreement about it. Uh, so there's a bit of friction between here and I about it, actually, which is good.
1: Yeah. Not All so. right. Well, we're still going to work together tomorrow morning. <laughs> I, can't yeah. wait to, I can't wait to hear the conflict between you. Yeah, okay. Right. So, shall we begin, chaps? Sure, sure. Lauren, do you want to run the, run, the book, uh, run the book club music? Hey, and welcome to Book Club. We've got James Muir <laughs> on the show today who is grooving on down. <laughs> so, there is James Muir, Mike Price, and today we're talking about a perfect close by James Muir the secret to closing sales. Let's get on with it. Good to see you, James it's great to be here guys yeah good to see you thank you and you are where in just in near salt lake city somewhere
2: that's right i live in a suburb of salt lake city called harriman it's uh it's in the mountains so oh, fantastic. uh i'm just i'm just far enough away from uh, the city to enjoy it but it's close enough to get to the airport
1: fantastic right well great to have you on the show thank you so much for coming on we we've two at the point at which we're recording this we're two shows into talking about the book, so so we've talked about the first seven
0: chapters. Yeah, we've far. we've
1: done the first yeah. seven chapters, haven't we? But well,
0: we've actually read it all, obviously.
1: But well, we've read it all uh, in advance of you coming on today. All right. Yeah.
2: So, what what made you want to write the book? Oh well, um, I'm a technical person actually, and so I I just I I'm a on. Um, un- unexpected salesperson. I, I fell into sales. So I was a technical person that worked for a revenue cycle management company. And then they opened up a location, a location where they also needed someone in sales. And so I got drafted into sales. And the irony is I used to go out with the salespeople to ha- answer all the hard questions. And I used to think, oh Lord, I, I hope I never have to do that. And then <laughs> of course, course next thing you know I'm I'm doing a full blast and then uh, actually um, it's clearly my calling I love it actually uh, but I'm a technical person in sales and so sometimes that comes out in the way I talk and speak and write and all of that
0: yeah do, do, do you know what's interesting about that and we were talking about this in today's episode that we recorded actually James and I have this this inner theory that you can tell the type of a salesperson by the way that they speak. So I've got some sales guys who started life as an accountant, some who started life as a lawyer, some who started life as a techie, some who started life as a salesperson. And your book for me is reminiscent of the same way that Sandler's book is written if you've read have you read sandler's selling book you can't teach your kids to ride a bike at a seminar
2: absolutely absolutely i'm a big fan of sandler
0: it felt exactly okay. the same to
2: me in terms of the
0: tenor with which it was written actually yes as by somebody that didn't start life in sales but then ended up in sales can i ask you this actually on that subject then along the same lines you know if you were to think about the people in the sales industry to whom this would appeal who would you say it would appeal
2: Um, I think it's really aimed at, uh, um, what I noticed is that my own teams and technical people or uh, domain experts or entrepreneurs that don't spend 100% of their time selling, I I found this pattern where they're they're not really comfortable with the closing part. In fact, they they felt, they've often told me that that's the part they hate the most about Mm -hmm. selling. And because I was a technical person, I got into a situation where I didn't know what to do next either. And I, I, am a avid reader. I read about a hundred books a year and I couldn't find any books that had closes in them that w- I felt congruent with my personality or the way that I work. They all just felt manipulative to me. And so I think uh, the book is aimed at those folks that aren't comfortable with that process and are looking for a very simple, very uh, straightforward, no pressure, non-confrontational way of advancing the sale.
0: You know, it sounds conceited that you said that now, because that's literally what I said to Jonathan. We both said half it. an hour ago. <laughs> it, it sort of, you know, because you meet some sales guys, right, that started at Xerox and then went to Computer Associates, then went to PTC, that are absolutely pure salespeople through and through. But I think it, I think we said the same thing. It appeals to that. yes. To those salespeople that you just mentioned. The
1: Mudbloods, they'd be called on Harry Potter, wouldn't they? No
0: idea.
1: Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and do you know, the fact that you've clarified that has really put a whole different spin on the book for me. Has it? Yeah. Because. Because
0: Jonathan is a sales snob, right? He <laughs> 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 only wants to know with people that have been selling for 16 and that's all
2: they ever Yes.
1: Been left school and immediately walked into a sales job.
2: I don't know well, anything else. I, I, I've been in for 30 years, so I, but well, I fell into it. If you said, hey, what career do you want to be in, I wouldn't have chosen sales initially. Because you uh, don't work a day over 65. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm 50, in case you're wondering. I'm 50. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: So We've got some questions there. Do you want to lead with them, Jonathan?
1: You or start can... with your first, and, I'll, and then I'll get a few in.
0: So the first thing then, and this is going through the book, so this is talking about the critical advance. Now I've got to say, you know, you wrote the book so you would know. I think that's a linchpin in the book for me. The thing that I wanted to understand from you is, you're opposite a client, how do you define action that requires energy by the client?
2: So, uh, and this is the thing, I mean, Neil Rackham is the one that we owe credit to for, determ- for creating the term "an advance and, and another one, a term he created called a continuation. He invented those. And uh, this, the easy definition of advance is moving the sale forward in a small way, but he never really went into detail about how you know whether you're doing an advance or not. And what I found managing my own people is my, my guys would be doing all this work for the customer and think that they're making progress when in reality the customer wasn't really doing anything. And, and so I created this criteria of uh, action and energy. And so action means the customer has to be doing something, right? They have to be doing something. Right. And then energy, the thing that they're doing has to require a significant amount of energy. It can't be a, a tiny amount of energy. Like going, to you, going with you to lunch does not require a significant amount of energy on behalf of the client. And so it doesn't really count. In fact, meetings in and of themselves, I don't really consider an advance, if the meeting moves the sale forward in some way, then it is an advance, but it's, it's it, and the meeting itself does not count as an advance, but if the meeting, you know, something productive comes out of that, then it might be. so. so
0: about, sorry, go
2: on. No, no, that's all right. go ahead.
0: I said something about you, but I find having been in salesman a long time that I can see people that go to a meeting for meetings sake.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that with my own people. And not only that, they'll, they'll go to a meeting and they'll say, hey, do you want a proposal? And, and it, it, clients are curious. They'll take a proposal even if, you, if, if, if they'll let you create a ton of work on your side as long as they don't have to do anything. And so they'll always say yes to a proposal. So my advice is don't ask them if they want a proposal, make them ask you for a proposal because that shows you very, a different thing about what's happening with the sale, right? So uh, and, and when the customer or when the sales rep is always uh, volunteering all the actions, it doesn't really tell you anything about this, about what's happening with the sale. And so, um, I discourage my salespeople from volunteering all that stuff. I, they can make suggestions, of course, which is what The Perfect close is about. But um, I, you, you don't want to seed their thinking into having you do all the work because it fools you into thinking you're making progress when you're not.
1: Yeah. And for me, uh, one of the things I wrote was what, uh, in my notes I put, what about tasking the client? So I know that you've talked about action and energy. But I I was always taught to go a step further and make the client actually do some real work. So, you know, for example, in solution selling, they often talk about getting the client to do some real tasking.
2: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. In fact, um, I have for several accounts created little forms that we make the customer fill out before we're actually gonna do go to the next step. And sometimes that's before we'll have an initial meeting with them, or sometimes it's before we'll have a second meeting where we do a demo. But I kind of think about it as having a ball and we throw them the ball. Yes. Now they have to do something. And if they'll throw the ball back to me, then I know they want to play. But if they don't throw the ball back, then I know this is not a good use of my time. And as salespeople, that's all we have. We convert our time into money. So it's really critical that we invest our time in the right places. And so these little tasks tell us whether we should be investing our time with a particular account or not. I
1: really like the, the, the procurement project plan where you give the procurement project plan to the client and you ask them to fill in the dates. So we're going to evaluate by that day. And we're going to do that by that day. And you'll have looked at that by that day. And you know, right, if the client's sending that back, you know, this is on.
2: That's one of the first things I did. I was so process oriented when I first got into sales that I actually created this diagram that said, you're going to do this. So I'm going to do this. And I would give this to the, and it was, I'll be honest with you, it was like overly process oriented Yeah. Uh, because that's how I was, but it was really over the top. But, Um, It really did show the customer, kind of the sequence that we're going to go through. And in in many cases, uh, in one embarrassing case, it actually, the customer said, hey, I think I'm here. And they would jump down to the bottom of the process where we're discussing agreements. And and so it helped. it, It helped a little bit, right? See where you're at in the cycle. Right. Cool. Okay. only other, other questions? I've got, lo- I've
0: got loads of other questions. All right. I, could, I could easily monopolise your time here. Okay,
2: I've,
0: I'm <laughs> going to go well, back. you said Have I might get any other questions.
1: Yeah, and know, then I'm I jumped off. in. That was <laughs> right, rude, wasn't it? All right, so I know you've talked about early in the book, you, you, you use a little bit of phraseology, and to be fair, just getting an underpinning understanding of where you feel the book is aimed at kind of negates my question, but it kind of doesn't. So you've talked a lot about the negative connotation people have with sales.
2: Yeah. You want to hear about that? I mean, data wise, it's a fact. If you said, if you pull a random hundred people on the street and say, all right, give me a bunch of words about sales and yeah. just listen, you're going to get a four to one ratio of negative terms like sleazy, slimy, that kind of stuff compared to a uh, coach or facilitator or any positive. You're going to get a four to one ratio of bad words to positive words. Okay. And so, when we go into sales, that's what's out there in the world. And so some of the people, they adopt that and and they take that and carry that with them. And so when they, and let me give you a really good example of this, because I just did a training for uh, an organization where all of their, uh, they call them account managers, but yeah. these account managers were basically just support people. And they previously, they had not carried a quota. And so they had then suddenly been given a quota. And okay. so I, they brought me in to train them. And in the first a um, few minutes, they were saying things like, well, how can I help my customer now that I've turned to the dark side? They were saying crap like that. <laughs> and I thought, "I thought, holy smokes, this training is going to be horrible until I can get their head turned around and understanding that selling is actually serving people and that you're not just having your hand out trying to get something from the customer. And so we had to just change the whole first two hours of the training to get their head turned around that, that, to understand that we're actually serving customers. And, that, and that's by understanding that, we can take a lot of the hesitation and an the, um, the negative connotation out of sales. It's just that people that came into sales maybe that way, yeah. they, they, ha- they do have that negative connotation. And so that's an easy thing to fix, right? I mean, well, I say it this way. There's two things. There's either skill or will. Skill is do you know how to close? That's easy. We just teach them the perfect close. The, the, the will part is do, are they willing to? Do they have the desire or the motivation to do that? And when we see that there's a problem there, you basically just gotta look at what the underlying causes of that. And sometimes they're worried that they're gonna lose a sale or sometimes they're worried that they're gonna look foolish or something like that. Sometimes those are the things. But the, uh, a, a very common one is this thing where they're, they're, really they shouldn't be in sales because they, they're ashamed to be in sales. And so once we understand, um, and I'm in healthcare, and uh, the, in, in healthcare, we sell a lot of products that actually save people's lives.
0: Well, Johnny, why don't we just do it straight? Which is, we were talking to James, we had a transatlantic technical issue when he was just telling us about us <laughs> stitching together, you know, through a bit of life, isn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here we are, we've reconvened using telephones rather than uh, internet connected. Do, do you know, I used to sell telephones.
0: They were called POPs, <laughs> plain ordinary telephone systems. That's literally That's right. what they're called.
3: They were. Uh, you know, I don't need that microphone now. So I can move that to one side. So James, we were just talking about the negative connotation people have with sales. Yeah. So Um, you
2: know. Let me tell you a trick that I use in healthcare to solve this problem. So, so, and, and not everybody has a negative connotation with sales, but some people are held back by the fact that they're, they think that selling is self-serving, that they're, that they're being greedy or that they're doing something wrong with it. And so that, and of course they telegraph that in their meetings with their clients and and that sends the, the wrong message to the clients that they think there's something wrong happening in this meeting. And so you okay. got to you got to fix that. You got to fix that. And so the, the way I get people to shift their paradigm is in healthcare we we sell a lot of stuff and those things actually save lives. They help people. And a really great example of this is years ago there was this child named Kaiba Frido that was born with a tracheal defect. And um this baby would stop breathing literally multiple times a day every day. And, and so Kaiba's parents were performing CPR on him literally every day. It would happen in a store or in a movie or in the car. And I, I'll bet these parents got zero sleep right? Because they're always worried that Kaiba's was going to stop breathing. And so they, they, they took this baby around all these different doctors and no, basically everybody said, well, we don't think he's going to live very long because there's nothing we can do with this birth defect. Eventually they got to this doctor named Dr. Glenn Green and Dr. Glenn Green out at CS um, Mott's children's hospital in the university of Michigan. He had developed this um, 3d printed um, tracheal splint Okay, it was a biodegradable right. 3D-printed tracheal splint, but it wasn't FDA-approved, so he couldn't use okay. it. And so he uh, went to some great lengths to keep the story short and did get FDA approval. They did the procedure on it, and this tracheal splint saved Kaiba's life, right? And, um, and so when we hear stories like this, we think, wow, what a great guy. Um, we would count ourselves you know, awesome to be part of humanity because of this you know, wonderful act that this person did. But what they don't realize is that this, in this very story, there was a sale here. In fact, there was a lot of sales. The CT and MRI scans um, cost money. The, the 3D printing costs money. The lasers, the, um, the biodegradable materials, all of that stuff costs money. And the guy that actually made all those sales is named Scott Hollister. Scott Hollister. And, but we never hear about Scott Hollister. And so you know, I would ask, well, do you, feel, do you feel that Scott did something wrong? By selling all those things, and of course the answer is no, of course not. And what and what this this example shows us is what selling really is, and that is selling is an act of service, right? Not and not every solution, all right, aims to to save a life or something as noble as that, but every solution helps a person solve a problem or move from where they are to where they want to be. A lot of solutions actually just make. Um, take the load off of a person and make free them up to do things that are more valuable with their time, like be with their family. Well, that's that is a noble purpose, right? Helping a customer move towards their goal is an act of service. So by shifting that paradigm, we can um, we can get people who are kind of reticent to advance the sale or close. We can get them understanding that really just helping, and that lets them yeah. walk into every meeting with a congruent feeling with their own values as they try to help customers
3: may I you know, challenge that then a little is, bit? Uh, my, oh, plan, I'm just going to challenge the, that a little bit, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. If if I need to reframe selling that much with a salesperson, should they really be in the game?
2: Probably not. Probably not. I agree with you on that. And uh, and so, but sometimes it happens. Like I said, I was just with this group of yeah. all account managers that all signed up for support jobs, but now became salespeople. So, you know, what okay. do we do? And and again, just by helping them understand that selling is not what you think it is. So, you know, we're not all slimy car salespeople okay. that are trying to push something on somebody. Um, no. We're actually ha- trying to help customers achieve a goal that helps them get behind it and transmit all the right messages when they're when they're with
3: a customer. Yes, it does. And, and and to be fair, James, i do, I personally do a lot of recruitment in healthcare technology sales, so a lot of my time is in that space and one of the things a lot of the candidates say to me is they say one of the great elements of the work they do is that they get to help what sometimes there's a really positive byproduct, which is they are actually improving patient outcomes of the product that they sell and and i get that but at the same time i often worry what i got in when i was reading the chapter was and i wrote down in my notes and it And it's, my question was about mindset was, if I'm going into a meeting trying to project, I don't want you to think I'm here for the money. I want you to think I'm here to serve you. If I am a salesperson and I am driven by money and I am hungry as hell, am I not being as disingenuous? Does that make sense? So my, that, that was it was it was more a question I was chewing it over when I was reading the book was, OK, so I'm very honest with my clients, but I have an advantage, which is most of my clients are salespeople. So I have to put that in context. And often I'll say to them, I'll be very clear with my clients what, why I'm there and what I want. And they're respectful of that clarity. And I know that in often in a more B2B sale in a more in the real world where you're not surrounded by mad sales guys all day, you can't often be that clear. But I did wonder. It, for, it, for me, I just thought it, it, it was a bit confusing. Is it not
2: more honest to be honest? <laughs> well, so what you're saying is, you if know, I have commission. You know, bre- if, you. I, if I have commission breath, should I just sell? Hey, I have commission breath. I really want your money.
0: I like, I like that um, phrase, um, by the way. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt I the to the you. I love the
2: phrase, Mr. Brett. What? No, what, what, I think what I meant was,
3: sometimes, it's, is it not okay to walk into an appointment and say, okay, Mr. Client, here's where I'm at. Obviously, I'm driven by earning money, but the only way I do that is if I've served you in a really great way, if I've understood you and cared for you and looked after you. And if I understand you and, and, and look after you and care for you and do what we need to do to, to give you the right outcome, I am going to get commission out of that. And if I am honest, I am driven by that. But at the same time, I'm also driven about doing a great job. So let's get this meeting underway. For me, that's more congruent than projecting that I'm a hundred percent about service.
2: Well, they're, they're, they're interconnected. You can't have one without the other, right? If you are, if honestly, if you really want to make a lot of money, you're going to have to be of a lot of service to a lot of people.
3: Yeah, there's no absolutely. getting around that. That's, and a,
2: that's a natural and you're law. you're going to have to bring a so lot of that, you. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I, I think the way you said it is 100% correct. Um, but I would just say this is that intent matters. And if you get to the very end, I'll share a story with where I sat next to a guy on an airplane, a long flight, um, with a sales guy who was one of these hard-driving guys. He's actually very intimidating-looking, uh, and um, and. <laughs> This 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 guy, um, he, I, we got to talking. You know, we found out we were both in sales, and so he starts telling me, goes, well, you know, he starts telling me his woes. So this guy was killing it at this company that he was at, and then I go, well, tell me what you you know, what are some of your challenges? He goes, well, my people can't deliver. My people can't deliver what I say, and as we started to talk a little bit more, what was happening is it, it, that, and the other thing he complained about was he goes, sometimes the customers make me do ridiculous things. To prove that they're going to get the value that I promise, and 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 you know for site visits and reference calls and long legal calls and all those kind of addendums <laughs> and things like that, and and I, and I and I said, is there any chance that they're picking up on the fact that you really don't care whether they get the results or not, and that you're just trying to get a deal done? And he goes, and, and he didn't take that well, okay. And then later in the in the area, so we did our own thing for a while, and then and then later in the flight, he goes, you know, James, I really don't think it's my responsibility for them to succeed. That's their job. My job is to make it possible for them to succeed. He'd say, but he said it's their job to actually do it. And, uh, but he, he also saw the wisdom he goes, you know, but I can see that if I come in with a, you know, into a situation like that, I can see that it might be causing them to hesitate and to make me jump through more hoops to prove it because they can see that I'm in it for me and not for them. And so um, I would just say these are one. They're the same thing. They say every sales great, every great salesperson I have ever managed and ever worked with has had this sort of watershed moment in their life where they figure out if they just help the customers get what they want, they're going to get all the money that they need. And I think Zig Ziglar said it the best. Right? He said you can get everything you want in your life if you just help enough other people get what they want.
3: Yeah, I like that. I love that Zig Ziglar quote. That's a, it's one of my favorite i I'm a big Zig Ziglar fan. Mike, are going to ask a question just then?
0: I was going to say a couple of things. I was going to say one, I was going to interject between the two of you actually and say that what you're talking about is is, is just two different shades of grey. I think if we had every author of every sales book on the show, all of us, would like in a room, 20 of us. In fact, I've got a plan. Let's all go to Vegas. Let's hire a hotel room. Let's have a big debate about about the about the um the spectrum of aggressiveness of salespeople and the manipulative nature of salespeople and if we could ever remember getting up the next morning because we've drunk that much booze, the outcome would be <laughs> is that actually we're all looking at the same landscape but we've just got a slightly different view of it based on our past and personal experience. Yes, and actually languages. the precursor the absolutely the precursor that James was saying, which you and I were saying earlier Jonathan, is that it's about it's it's about who this book suits so James you obviously watched all our episodes and you'll remember with great fondness when we were talking about the wolf of wall street <laughs> book. right and when i compare you know this to the wolf of wall street you know if we've got the wolf on you know let's get it right he's gonna he's gonna make us all all, all pretty frightened out of thought and actually there's a spectrum that sits on it that isn't what i was going to say actually the what you know and, and i have when i've read this book James you, you know if you watch any of our shows about well, whatever, you you'll find that I'm a stubborn man that isn't open to change. And I don't um, and I don't apologise for that. But I know that when I read the books, I think, think to myself, come on, Mike, make yourself read it, make yourself read it, every single book I've ever read. And I did that with your book, and, I, and the more I've read it, the more I've liked it. And if somebody said to me, should I buy it? I'd say, yeah, you should buy it, because it covers some stuff in a way that, you know, it looks at it from a slightly different angle, from a different perspective. The one thing I want to ask you about, and it is a point of, question with you is that it doesn't ever really delve into qualification in any in any great detail this book i don't think for me
2: yes so the the, uh, i claim that the perfect close will get you 95 percent moving the sale forward so what you end up with is actually a fairly large pipeline of a whole bunch of deals that are moving at their own appropriate pace and so um, I'm not a fan of using tactics and techniques to try to accelerate the sale, nor do I believe that you have much control over that. Um, I think the simpler the sale is, meaning the fewer steps there are, the more it is possible to use tactics and techniques like that to accelerate the sale. But the larger the sale, when I, I, I deal in sales that are large B2B sales, they're multi-million dollar deals, And um, these tactics are not effective on large B2B sales. In fact, they're counterproductive, most of the ones that you learn. So um, where I'm going with this is you're going to end up with a bigger pipeline, which, by the way, brings a lot of peace of mind as a sales rep, and they're all going to be moving at their own pace. And like I said, it's going to get you about 95%. Well, it doesn't matter what group you're in front of doing a keynote. As soon as you offer them 95%, somebody will raise their hand and say, hey, well, what about that last 5%? What about, and um, what I will say this is if you, and uh, and I don't know if you've gotten to the perfect close questions, but if you ask a person, um, hey, you know, what's a good next step, okay, and they can't come up with anything, then what does that tell you about the quality of the person that you're working with? You, that, you need that 5% to disqualify the people that you shouldn't be working with. And so, so I haven't so covered, I-, I haven't covered a lot of qualifications a- as part of the process, But I do have a lot of thoughts about that.
0: So can I just make sure I've listened to you properly there? So what you're saying is that if we follow this process, the qualification will naturally come out as you follow the process.
2: Exactly right. If they can't come up with a a natural next step, then that tells you this is not someone you should be working with.
1: Right. And so what you're saying is
3: greater pipeline volume, if there's no natural next step, then it's dropping out the pipeline and it's changing the level of the forecast.
2: Yeah, and now let me let me just throw something else here that's not in the book that I think is super important, right? Because as okay. an author of a best-selling book on closing, one time somebody asked me, they said, "Hey, what do you think is the single biggest best thing you can do to improve sales?" They asked me that question, and like I said, as a author of a best-selling book on closing, you probably think my answer would be closing, but it isn't. It isn't. The answer to that question is only sell to qualified prospects. That's the answer to the question. It's the single biggest... How, le- highest how can we not mention that? Because that's not what this book's about. I'll be able to do another book on tactical prospecting that will include that. But this book is just about how to advance the sale. It's not. It's, this is not the A okay. to Z of sales. right? It, it's just what one little piece of the sales process.
3: It's what we said in the show earlier, which is you can only write
2: about so much in one book. Yeah, and I'm lucky that it's self published because a, a real publisher would not have let me have 300 pages worth of content. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I I limited limited me to 200 right now. Pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, but that's, okay. That, that, that's a big thing. That's a big thing. When people want to know, hey, what's the single biggest thing I can do? Um, well, a lot of people kind of gravitate toward closing as being the thing. And if you have a big pipeline, it might be. But really, just making sure that you're not wasting your time on ineffective prospects is the single best thing you can do to improve uh, your close ratio.
3: Okay. So okay. James, I, I'm a really big fan of adding value in the sale. And, you know, we've just finished Eat Their Lunch by Anthony Amarino. And obviously mm-hmm. there is a very significant element of, of, of that conversation in the book. I, I believe that as a salesperson, when I was a younger in my recruitment career, I was very, very young for my age and I had to learn very quickly I'm going to have to be more credible and I'm going to have to know more about this environment than my clients. Um, and I read and read and read and read because I looked very young in those days, um, which didn't help. Um, so I really like that. And I like the con—I like the concept of extrapolation bias and that and you talk about that extrapolation bias between the experience that, that the sales guy or, or lady is giving the client and therefore where they will go extrapolatively with it uh, further down the line. I I asked Anthony a similar question, which is, yeah, okay, you've got to bring something to the party from a credibility and a knowledge perspective. You've got to bring something to that climate. They don't know. You've got to be there. You've got to be a subject matter expert. You've got to bring some value. And and that therefore means you're a guy worth spending time with. Adds a whole lot to the sale. What does a younger sales pro do for you? 24 year old, he's bright, he's fabulous, but he doesn't have the grey hair that allows him to bring that value.
2: So what's the suggestion to that? Yeah. Well, that happens everywhere, right? When you're working with an organization, if they have a sales force of any significant size, you're going to have some guys that are really experienced and already know everything, and you're going to have a bunch of guys that were just hired last week. And so it's it's part of the organization's responsibility to distill the insights that exist within the senior people into a playbook that can actually, and and into messaging that can be used by the new guys. That's a, a very, very important process. And... Um, one of the the biggest, uh, it's craziest phenomenon that I have seen. I've worked for some very large companies. Is that if you say, Hey, why do people buy your stuff? If you ask them about that question, like literally 80% of the time, what I get back is complete weak sauce. They just are not very good at articulating what their value proposition is. And I'm very, uh, I, I cover it just barely a little bit in the book because you need to know. People should know. The client should really know why they, really like they need with you. This is- yeah they, they clients should know why they're meeting with you, right? And so at the very minimum, very minimum, there's a lot more to a good value prop, but you should at least know what it, what's the metric that you're using. Do you raise it or do you lower it, and how much do you raise it or lower it? Those three things are the very, the bare bones minimum that you need to know about your value proposition. And so you should be able to tell people, hey, I improve, uh, on average, our clients improve their close ratio by twenty two percent that's a That's a very small value prop, right. And what I find is that they don't know those things and they're not distilling that down to their team. And so, what's happening is the poor sales rep is on their own to try to figure out what the value is to their customer. And it's really especially important to be able to articulate that during the prospecting process when you're first opening the conversation with, because the customer's trying to figure out, should I meet with this guy or not? Right? What's the point? And uh, so, if you don't have that information, you're going to have a, a really, really hard time getting in with any client, whether they're an established, existing customer or they're a brand new customer. If you don't know why they should meet with you, what your value prop is, you're going to have a, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Okay, I get that. You got a question, Pricy?
0: Well, I think, I think I'm not keeping out of necessarily, but I guess we're we'll sort of get approaching the hour, so I want to get to which is. Uh, way anyway, games i love the fact that you said go straight to chapter 12 if you want i like that i, I didn't actually you made me read the whole book it was like i
3: did really cool. i was very disciplined about it
0: yeah it was It was sort of a whole bit of psychology actually but you know this initial question does it make sense for us to and this is for people listening this is the perfect close question does it make sense for us to x what's a good next step now i've got to say i didn't like that question to be perfectly honest but The more I've spent time with you talking about it, the more I do like the question, actually. And you know what would have been interesting, Jonathan, (laughs) which you should do next time round, is we should maybe interview the author before we read the book, actually. Because
3: because the context has changed. The context context has changed. changed
0: And I've really changed my perception of that question whilst I've been sat here with you. I was ready to give you a, a really hard time about that initial question. But now I'm actually sat there thinking, do you know what I get completely? How that question fits in the framework of this book. And I'm really glad I read the book and spoke to you and I've spent some time speaking to you. Can I be clear to people listening is James makes the point that sometimes when people um, paraphrase the suggestion, it doesn't work as well. If you were training me, James, is that word for word what I'm saying to my prospects?
2: I, that's what I recommend. It, it At its core, does it make sense is really a timing question. And to be candid, there, there might be some American dialect uh, nuance to that, right? And so there may be, in other countries, not a perfect match for how that doesn't make sense to whatever. Uh, and, and so you could replace it with, you know, is the timing right for us to whatever? It, it really is accomplishing the same thing. Um, but it's important to dis- to make a distinction between that and typical closing questions where I'm asking, will you do X? Will you do something? Because when a customer, when you ask that question and the customer says, no, you're on really low ground, you've started it, you're back to square zero. But if I say, um, does it make sense for us to you know, do an assessment? Then they clearly know I'm thinking about asking them about an assessment, but I haven't really done it yet. Right. And so they're telling me, oh yeah. Yeah. The timing is good for that. Awesome. Then we can move forward. If they say no, then in the most basic version, which is the one you just shared, I just throw the ball back to them and say, well, all right, well, what do you think is a good next step? And I have done hundreds of ride-alongs. And what I can tell you is that 90% of the time, the customer actually suggests a very logical next step for where they're at in their buying process. And uh, and then just to kind of t- take that last, you know, percentage that we're not getting, if they can't come up with anything, then they're that, they're trying to tell us something about how qualified they are as a prospect to us. Do
3: you, do you know what's interesting? Not,
2: but, 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 on,
0: Mike. Sorry, Jonathan. Sorry, Jonathan. I didn't realise that you were going to start talking over me all the time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm taking the mickey, obviously. But, but I, you, you know, the the thing I was going to say is, I think that if you've been selling for a long time, you know, so I've been a salesman for 20 years, to disregard 20 years worth of not asking a closed question. And to ask two closed questions one after another will take a lot of bravery. You must find a lot of resistance from experienced sales teams with those two questions, I suspect.
2: Yes. And actually I would just say this, if a salesperson's already successful and they're closing, this is not for them, right? We don't want to discard everything. I don't want to say <laughs> if you're, if you're using the alternate choice close successfully in your type of sale, man, go to town don't change anything on that. But um, what I have found is that even with brand new guys, let's just take that we just talked a minute ago about how do brand new people get the insight that they need in order to add value to a meeting, right? Well, we got to give it to them. But what I've learned about this perfect closed question is if they go into a a sales encounter and they really don't even know the whole sales process or the buying process very well, they can still ask a customer, well, what do you think is a good next step? And the customer will walk them through the buying process. So they literally teaches them the process. Okay. Yeah. And it's so I, 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 mean, I, I have that with it? my own team. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I very I, I like that
3: One of the things Michael and I were talking about before we started recording today was we were talking about a case where a, a, a lady I know in the healthcare sector, who was an ex clinician, um, who, sadly, has left the selling profession um, as a result of having been fired from a recent position. And I did say, if somebody had given her this book, the the client said to me, I said, why did you fire her? Uh, And um, she said, um, she worked 100 hours a week, and she'd go to a meeting upon meeting upon meeting. And she didn't know that she, she never created an advance anywhere and she never closed for an advance and when I would take meeting feedback off her how did meeting x go she'd say oh they were lovely and she'd have a lovely time and the clients loved her they thought she was wonderful because she was so credible and so knowledgeable about the market so in that context I do I think that this is tremendously valuable and I and I look at some of the people I work with in healthcare as you've alluded to and I think wow that would be an absolute game changer then I look at it from the, through my own lens and I looked at it and thought, I'm not that comfortable with that because, hold on a minute, surely if the client can't give me a next step or doesn't want to take the action that I'm potentially suggesting, I'm wondering what's going on here, and I'd be more inclined to probe and drill a little bit deeper. But I think for a, a salesperson that's not, Because I think sometimes if you're you're qualifying or you're objection handling, you can do it quite deeply if you come from a place of warmth and if you come from a place of sincerity, but that takes a lot of time and integration. And I think where you're coming from with this is, actually you could walk straight into a sales job, turn up at an appointment next week, and say, what are the next steps? And actually be in a half decent place to knowing where you're at without 20 years of integrating a lot of that knowledge and then having the courage to say I'm sensing something's on your mind here mr. client come on what is it because that takes time to develop what I call the cheeky smile that's relaxed enough that the client will go okay look here's what's bothering you mate
2: yeah hundred percent in fact uh, just uh, your example that you gave on healthcare, I I, get, I see a lot of that in device sales and lots of different types of healthcare-related sales where you've got people that are very strong in a domain, maybe they started out being a nurse or being a doctor or something yep. like that, and now they're in sales. And so the paradigm shift I tried to give them, because you gotta remember, you still do have to ask the sale, for the sale. You've got to ask. You have to advance the sale in some way. You It won't close itself. That's a myth. And that's, it's one that I fell for myself. And, and you're going to have to make some attempt to advance the sale. So the key is, well, how do I do that? How do I do that without feeling like I'm, like I'm uh, changing my personality or something like that? And so, the, again, the way I like to help them understand that or, or, or change their paradigm a little bit is to think, look, the customer wouldn't even be sitting in front of you if they weren't trying to make a positive change in some way. And so they're hoping that you are some kind of coach, some kind of person that would help them move forward. All of us would love to have a coach that would help us with our fitness or whatever it is, right? And so they're expecting yep. you to do that, right? So when you don't advance the sale in some way, you are you are actually failing as your job as a coach and facilitator to help them, to help affect a, a positive change for them. And so um, th- 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 what that means is that selling is really more, it- it's more than just advancing the sale. It's really more about leadership. And what I think is that salespeople as a whole can do a better job of being leaders, you know, teachers, facilitators, they can do a whole lot better job of those things than they're doing today.
3: Good for you. I like that. I I like that paradigm of thinking about the profession. Next date scheduling. I love the fact that you've mentioned that. It's a big, big for me. I was always taught, you walk out of the next meet, you walk out of the meeting with another meeting in the diary. And I'll, I'll give you a great, example of that is many years ago I worked with my wife who is a salesperson and we went to an appointment in London and uh, we did this demo and there were eight very senior executives in the room and uh, we did a great demo and we absolutely nailed this product pitch and at the end of it we, we went through the meeting and we said great where are we going to go and they said well we need to bring this forward now there's a couple of other people who need to see the technology. we qualified. Why do they need to see it? Who are they? We're in the buying process. And we uh, and who who else needs to be present? We worked out who needed to be present. And uh, my wife went, great. Okay, so when are we going to do that? And all these really senior lawyers, I mean, they're heavyweight guys. Some of these guys mm-hmm. in a million pounds a year Go. Oh, well, I'll let my PA deal with that. And my wife gets a laptop up. She opens a laptop and she goes, I understand we've got the meeting room for another four hours. And the guy goes, yes. And she went, I'll wait whilst we get it sorted. And then literally she sort of half dismisses all these guys and just starts reading emails on her laptop. And I go, you can't do that. And she said, we'll wait. And about half an hour later, PAs started coming in the room with diaries. (laughs) And before we knew it, we'd walked out of the meeting with the whole thing organized for the next stage of the sale before we'd
2: left. Now, think I, how I, much time they cut out of the sales cycle by doing that? Yeah. I mean, and she, for weeks, probably. Yeah. And
3: she did it with a smile on her face. Oh, wait, it's okay. <laughs> Train's not for four hours. And, everybody, and, and, and I was like, that's rude. But it wasn't. It was very friendly with the way she did it. Big smile on her face, dead calm. They all sort of laughed. And they all came back with dates. And I do wonder, I look often, for example, in interviews. It's amazing, James, in an interview, statistically, I would say two to three times more likely that a candidate will get a job who walks out of an interview with the next date in his diary than one that doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Would I you agree? You know, with- you-
2: yeah. 100- sorry, was that Mike? Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, it's fine. We we were, we were going to say exactly the same thing, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, of course, you both know that I'm a big fan of agendas. And so by having in the agenda, right there, listed in the agenda – that you're going to ask for next steps and that you're going to schedule the next meeting, it makes it really easy because you're just you're just going through the topic, you're going through the agenda. Oh, hey, the part where we're going to talk about next steps has come up. Now we're going to use our perfect close questions and then, all right, when are we, when's our next meeting? And then we just do it. We do it right then. So yeah, I, 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 I really like you, even thing. if you can't remember,
3: because you you can actually put your clothes in the agenda. Yeah, yeah, and I did I did really like that because you. It's made me think that I've got a call tomorrow with a client. Like it's a qualifying call before an appointment. And it did make me think, even for a qualifying call, is it, is it fair to send an agenda? We've got 15 minutes scheduled on the telephone. These are the things I want to talk about. And actually, because I'm selling to salespeople, I can be a lot more open than perhaps in the healthcare sector where I can actually say, listen, I want to ask you, because you've got budget?" Have you, have you got a need? Have you got a timescale? Why have you got a need? I can be, it's, I can be a lot more open and a lot more clear very quickly in, in our world than perhaps somebody selling a
2: medical device to a surgeon. Yeah, agendas aren't very sexy, but, man, they are really effective. I mean, I, I, literally, I just used one earlier, um, uh, like on Thursday, and... Shut it out, and what did I get back? Oh, no, we want these things covered. Well, what did they just tell me? They right. told me the bull, the bullseye of what we need to cover when we get yeah. there. Oh, well, if I had just shown up and did my thing, I would have been way off target. And so collaborating with the customer on the agenda before you meet, man, that is just pure gold. Yeah, I really like that. And I think, again... What amazed? I, I'd love to do a survey
3: of how many guys out there are creating a formal agenda before they turn up at a meeting, versus how many are just turning up. Because I yeah, often one, think that is very powerful.
2: Yeah, one in twenty at best, guaranteed. Not I very many people. I mean,
3: when I was at, when I started my sales career age 24 at Parcel for selling parcel distribution. You weren't allowed to go to a meeting until you'd filled in a green sheet. And a right. green sheet was a call. Miller Hyman, yeah. It, 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 it's sort of similar, but I think it, it predates that in a way. You had to fill in and send it to your manager. This is my plan for that meeting, mm-hmm. and it got approved before you got in your car. Otherwise, and it would say, "What's your plan? What are you going to do? Who are you going to speak to? Why are you there? What are you going to say when you get there?" And actually, it made us much more effective. And I, I thought again, that is really, really elegant.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of pre-call planning. Bill Brooks, the late Bill Brooks, if you guys know who he is, he, he felt he like that, that that pre-call planning was the single biggest thing a salesperson could do to be more effective. And so I'm wow. not sure I, I would rank it number one, but I, it's definitely right there in the top five things that you can possibly do is just to pre- take a minute and prepare before you get there because, like you said earlier, customers take our experience with, with just a small amount of time that we spend with them and they extrapolate in that into what they think our whole experience is going to be with the company after they buy. And so it's really important that that sampling of their experience with us be a very good and positive uh sample because it, you can get outsold by someone with a completely inferior product as long if they their sample of the experience of the sales process is better than yours. That when that happens, you are in fact being outsold. That's what's happening. That's and complete. so we need to spend a minute to think about, okay, how can I maximize this one encounter, this one experience with this person? So they walk away thinking, wow, I really want to work with these guys. That was a great experience. And that just won't happen on the fly. It it takes preparation. Absolutely. You made a really interesting point earlier in the book where you said, um,
3: you talked a little bit about buyer behavior and the buying journey. Yes. And I, I did wonder, why has nobody written a book all salespeople about buyer behavior.
2: Well, I'm. I, I will say this. I'm. I'm in the process. I, I'm working on. It. But really, I, why it, it? It's not. Comp, it's not easy. Yeah. Let me show you. Uh, this is not available. Uh, here you go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So th- this is uh, the buying process. You see just a couple of fly or a couple of images inside the perfect clothes that talk a little bit about that and how to yeah. make the buying experience valuable by understanding what stage they're in. And um but there's a whole lot more to um applying sales to the buyer's process. And um and there is the risk to be candid with you of making it too complicated because you know the whole the whole point of creating a model is to make the model simple enough that it can be adopted and used by people in real life. If you make the model too complicated, if you create 27 steps then it's it becomes more complex and it's not adding any value because people can't remember that yeah. many steps. So there's an art to taking a complex thing and simplifying making it you know as simplified as it can be without making it too simple. And uh hopefully yeah. I'm accomplishing that a little bit with the perfect clothes and then of course uh, what's coming up soon with tactical prospecting.
3: Fantastic. When to tactical prospecting work in coming up.
2: Well, that's a good question. We will see. It's, uh, it's in, it probably, it, it'll probably be either late 2019, so maybe in the, in the fall or the winter of this year is the goal. Well, we would love to talk about it on the
3: show because we love a good book about prospecting, don't we, Mike? Well,
2: yeah, and right now the best book on prospecting that's out there, hands down, is Jeb Blunt's book, Fanatical Prospecting. So um, that's love the it. one that people should, should start with, I think.
3: That's very gracious of you, James.
2: Yeah, no, he and I are friends, and uh, and actually, I, I think all of his books are phenomenal. But that one, that book is so amazing. It's like the Harry Potter of of sales books. Go look <laughs> at it. I mean, it's it is. Yeah, it's an excellent book. So right. there, there's should. there's a lot of books out there, and you can't go wrong with that particular one. Great, Mike. Any questions? Cool.
0: No, listen, I want to say, James, and I'm going to suggest this to Jonathan. Jonathan, this is sort of work in progress. I wish that we'd had this conversation before I read the book because it took me a while yeah. to get to the point at which I, I thought to myself, come on, Mike, you'll be narrow-minded you're seeing it from your own viewpoint and not James's viewpoint, which is different to yours. And then when I started seeing it from your viewpoint, I thought, right, this is making a lot of sense to me. And I would urge people that read this book to read it and think, listen, I need to read it from somebody else's perspective rather than my own I think you've been absolutely thoroughly great person to have on the show. Um, So thanks for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on again. We can can do a round two at some point if you want to. Definitely. Do you ever get over to England? I haven't yet. I haven't, I haven't been to Europe yet. So, um, that's, uh, I I almost did in December of uh, last year in 2018, but, uh, the the event that we were going to do did not come to fruition. So we'll see if we can pull that off again here in 2019. Could you not get an advance? (laughs) That's right. That's
3: right. (laughs) Absolutely. It didn't advance. Right. Well, listen, James, it's been great to meet you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh,
2: I, 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 I think it's that. a wonderful service what you guys are doing, and I, I think you're you're selecting top notch books for that purpose. And so uh, I'm honored to be on, and I'm ha- happy to share you know whatever you know small amount of wisdom I might be able to impart to your audience.
3: Thank you. It was plenty of wisdom. Let me tell you, and, and what's been really interesting was the context that sits underneath the book has really changed my perception. I, I came in today. I was going to, like Michael, I had a few things, for example, and I've written down here where I was a bit like, well, why would you not drill more deeply into that? Why would you not do this? But actually in its context, I think that's a really very good book for the right audience at the right point. But I, um, and I think the audience that you described at the start of the show today, I think would benefit enormously from it.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the compliment.
3: Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for putting up with us while we had our little technical problem. Uh, And I guess uh, we will run the titles over the recorded bit because we're not using the same bit of kit as we started off with. Thank you and goodbye.
2: All right. Have a good one, guys.